morning looking at that uh, subject of battle strategy. Uh, And then we've got a couple of things to follow on from that as we come uh, before we come to to worship again. Um, You you probably realize that in, I mean, I've never been in a physical uh, battle. Um, Obviously, you read stuff, you learn stuff. And of course, my father uh, was uh, very much involved in that. And I grew up to to some of the stories and things that he he told. Uh, And therefore, some of the views that I would have formed, as all of us, would be um, from basically stories that I heard and things that he said. Have a nice trip, Neil. (laughs) I I learned, I don't know whether it's still true or what, but one thing was absolutely critical, you you really can't go asleep in battle. Uh, It's not a time uh, to be asleep. In fact, I don't know about now, but at one stage, if you were caught on sleep on sentry duty... Uh, that was a, a capital offence. You could get shot for that. Uh, and not just by the enemy, you know, by, by your own side. So um, we are a people that we know, and we've been establishing this, reminding ourselves again in recent times, that the, the kingdom is advanced by force, and forceful men take the kingdom. It's not a kind of calm, easy, gentle thing. It's basically... Uh, we are called to engage with the King of Kings uh, in this battle, in this uh, extending of the kingdom uh, under the power of his might. And certainly, in such a time as that, we would want to be uh, awake and aware. Certainly not a time to be asleep. So, I'm not necessarily talking about physical sleep, I'm talking about Uh, an awareness of being switched on to what's happening. To know where the enemy is. To know what is an enemy. Remember, uh, in the the Bible, there was that particular time when they could... Actually, I know about this. An enemy has done this. There's there's an ability to actually see. We, We don't want to be fighting shadows. We need to be knowing the things that we stand for, the things that we make us stand for, the things that we're advancing with. So we need <coughs> vision, purpose, but sightedness to see where things are. Now to help us in that, in Amos 3, uh, God says that he does nothing unless he first reveals it to his servants, the prophets. So it's useful for us to think, hmm, so that we are actually engaged with him in this advance, in this battle, in this strategy, we need to constantly keep before us what are the things that he has revealed to us. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail specific at the moment, but let me just give you some general things that will ring true to to many of you that are very familiar with this. For example, uh, investing in the next generation. That's why we are prepared, whether it's in governmental prayer or in any other form, to, uh, to battle for our young people, to battle for those who have slipped away, not just to accept that. That's, that's part of what God has said for us to do. Investing in the next generation. His word to us. Sow sons as seeds in foreign soil. We don't quote that one a lot. That's very real. That's why we build relationally across the network. And that's why we're engaged in things in many other different nations. That's why we're prepared to battle. That's why we're prepared uh, to really seek through when there's something that would, would interrupt and close down. That's why recently uh, you came to prayer for Julio and the situation there in Peru. And we saw in that instance a rapid response, a rapid answer to prayer. In Zimbabwe, it's sometimes been 
goes one way, then another. But we, we, we have to battle through. We can't just kind of give up or turn our back on it. Same with Sierra Leone or whatever the case may be. Pouring out the oil is another prophetic word to us. I'm just pulling out a few examples so you understand that the things that we are contending for, the things that we're praying into, the things that we're sending, going, counseling, confronting, are about being engaged in very real <clears throat> battle and a strategy. It's interesting to know also uh, that, that God will speak through a whole variety of ways. And I'm talking about being switched on, being aware. I'm talking about sightedness. I'm talking about knowing what we should be doing, where we should be going. And the way we get that, of course, is we hear God. We don't sort of pick out things, oh, here's my project for the week, or here's my project for the year. We don't operate like that. We operate on the basis of what is, what is God saying. In Amos uh, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, this, talks, well, I won't go into it now, but it's a strange kind of picture, prophetic picture. It talks about, uh, all of a sudden, about a basket of fruit. See this basket of fruit on the table. You know, you remember right through the Bible, God does this. He sort of, so no, look, look at the ant, or look at the seed growing, or look at a mustard. I mean, it, it uses these things. It's a basket of fruit. You know, oh, well, there's a basket of fruit on the table. What about a basket of fruit? What he's saying is, it's there, it's ready, it's ripe, now is the time. Uh, this is not something that you can leave for a couple of weeks and come back. No, it's now time. It was a, it was a, a, a revelation, not just of his intention, but his moment. <clears throat> we have to know his mind and his moment. I've often mentioned that, something that Arthur Wallace dropped into us years and years ago. Uh, a man that many of you didn't know, but those of you who did know, was a highly regarded servant of God, very intelligent, educated, spiritual man, uh, and very much a, uh, an older man, a kind of father amongst us. And <coughs> excuse me. And then he would he, he would sometimes say these things, and he, he carried a gravitas about him. How many of you remember Arthur Wallace? Oh, quite a few of you, yeah. And uh, he would say, "Brothers, he, he was a." He was a kind of man from a military background, took a cold bath every morning, that sort of, you know, very, very posh as well, you know. Uh, it was quite, quite a revelation staying at his house, you know. Very, very kind. But you kind of thought that you were stepping up into a, into a new class. I'm not sure what he felt uh, when I was taking him and Bryn and one or two others, and I had the, their bags in the back of that car where... When I went over, when I went over a bump, the the the, the back door of the estate car used to come open, and I dro- lost his bag in the middle of the road. <laughs> but he, he was a very real gentleman, he sort of guy, and uh, so I had to stop and get retrieve his bag. Uh, it's where we used to put the kids, by the way, as well. That <laughs> uh, was all right. We used to say, "Don't lean up against the back door of the estate because if we go over a bump, it." Tends to come open. We've still got the kids, so. Excuse me. <laughs> he used to say, <laughs> he said, brethren, you must know his mind and his moment. So the timing is very important, as well as the direction of the things that God does. And he speaks through ordinary things. Um, and we want to be tuned in to everything that he's saying. There's another story that helps us to understand the importance of being connected in, aware, um, tuned in to what he's saying. And that's the story of Moses and the burning bush. And I think I've got some help on this one. You, you probably all know the story. <clears throat> I think the important things to understand is that Moses saw the 
intimation of the, of the presence of fire, um, recognizing how God is a consuming fire. He, I mean, it wasn't an unusual thing for bushes to catch fire in, in the desert. <clears throat> but he drew near. He inquired. It, it, it wasn't just, oh, yeah, well, it always happens, or uh, he didn't run away in fear. Uh, he didn't kind of, was so engrossed in what he was doing that he ignored it. And I think from that, all these things, remember, are there for us to learn, to learn a strategy. And the strategy of awareness, sightedness, being switched on to what's happening, understanding the importance and significance of the things that we see. And he saw, he drew near, then he inquired, and he, he, he determined to, to turn aside and see it. And the result was, what was the result? What was the result? He heard God. Yeah. But you see, if he hadn't have done the first thing, he wouldn't have been engaged in the most important thing. He heard God. And you know the whole thing, you take off your shoes and stand on holy ground and all that. What I'm, what I'm saying, folks, is that we, we really got to kind of make sure we switch on to hearing God, knowing his mind, knowing his moment, and being uh, aware of what he's doing. And it is important to hear him because if we assess things uh, with our own ability, it can be very, um, very destructive. Uh, remember, uh, he spoke to the children of Israel uh, about the land that he was going to give them back in Numbers chapter 13. And he spoke about the land which I am giving you. Ah, right there is the key. You've got to hear what you say. I am giving you this land. But, but there's all these giants. Uh, and there's this and, I mean, it's good, but it's very difficult. But you see, right there was a vital positioning statement. I'm giving you this land. See, hearing determines our placing, our positioning. How we hear determines how we see. And they had to look at the land and choose to hear God. Otherwise, they would have been uh, completely, uh, completely missed the purpose of God at that point, which many of them did, of course. So, yeah, there were giants. Yes, it was a problem, but God had said, I am giving it to you. And therefore, they could enter into, into battle. Uh, see, we also have to understand that in a battle strategy, one of the things the enemy seeks to do is to intimidate. I mean, in a wartime thing, you get this huge propaganda thing. It's all to try and intimidate. We can't really afford to take on a position of intimidation. Uh, God has not called us to that, and it's important that we never uh, find ourselves trapped into that. It's what can God do, what is God saying, rather than what the circumstances are. And you've got the children of Israel again in this situation uh, where they're saying, oh, look, at, I mean, it's just uh, it's overwhelming forces. The truth of the matter is we, we just look like grasshoppers in the sight of the enemy. Now, I always take note, the enemy never said that. They said that. They were already talking themselves into a position of intimidation. On the other hand, you've got the the Goliath situation, and David. Uh, and I'm kind of not going into great detail in these stories because I think most of you know them, but uh, this is where Goliath was uh, the leader of the enemy. The children of Israel, again, were completely intimidated, uh, unable to move because they had this huge giant that was leading, and, uh, leading the fight uh, from the Philistines and was intimidating the children of God. Then David comes along, just a, a boy uh, that's been minding sheep in the desert, the youngest of his brothers, and sees the situation. Remember, he was only there to deliver some, some food to his older brothers. He was like kind of a sandwich delivery boy. And he, 
He wasn't there to battle. But when he saw the situation, there was something that kind of rose up within him. Uh, There was something that he was in tune with God and could pick up God's position there. So it's a very interesting, very uh, dramatic story because you've got the whole of the army of the children of Israel bogged down and intimidated and this boy coming along whose only job is to deliver some food and yet he somehow picks up the, the, the heart and mind of God and that alone is all that's necessary to thrust him into that position and that battle position. It wasn't at all based on an assessment of the situation. In fact, it was completely ridiculous. But there's something within him. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who will defy the armies of the living God? It was, it was a totally unacceptable situation. And of course, you know, the story was uh, uh, he had this various discourse and people tried to intimidate him and dismiss him. But essentially, uh, he heard from God and continued in that vein and then slew the giant, knocked him down with the pebbles from his sling and, uh, and, and then chopped his head off for good measure. I like those stories. You know, I mean, I'm a peace-loving person sometimes. But some of those stories, you know, are really good. I think that that gives me every justification to have the equivalent of a sling, which is a catapult that I can use to destroy the enemy in my garden. <laughs> How many of you think that the one that my wife confiscated from me should be given back to me? How many of you don't think that? Traitors. (laughs) Just because I missed the cat and put a stone through a glass house. I can't see why that should be such a problem. The men of Issachar had an insight, an understanding. They knew the times. They understood the seasons. They saw and knew what to do. That is the plan and purpose of God. We're not a people that are kind of there with a strategy uh, or no strategy to kind of thrash around in the dark, but a strategy given by God himself. There's an interesting uh, little discourse uh, in the New Testament. And... It's all around about the the, the situation of harvest. And there's these people saying, well, it's not yet the time. It's four months to the harvest and so on and so forth. And there's Jesus saying one of these things that must have seemed really odd, really bizarre, because everybody can see, I mean, you know, even us that live in the city understand that harvest is when the stuff comes up a bit higher, you know. And we're too technical. It gets up to... And I mean, four months before that, it ain't there, you know. So it's amazing you come to these meetings, you get lessons in agriculture. And, yeah. I mean, it, it just... And then you've got Jesus saying, now is the time of harvest. And I, I have a certain measure of sympathy for the disciples, for the people that were listening. Thinking, yeah, I, I can't quite get this. But there is a getting of it which is not via a logical think thought process any more than David arrived at his decision to tackle the giant from a logical, uh, rational process. It's this back to this thing of hearing God and, and responding to what he says. And now is the time. It was God's timing right there. But I want us to just have a little look at uh, a story in Two Kings. Take a little bit more time on this one. <clears throat> story of uh, Elisha. 
2 Kings chapter 6. And I'm kind of jumping in again on the story. The king of Aram's at war with Israel. And uh, Elisha is helping Israel, of course, warning them about what the king of Aram is up to and where there's a... uh, where there's an ambush prepared so they don't go that way and so on and so forth. And on one of these occasions, the king of Aram, who's the enemy, he's so uh, enraged, he said, uh, he got all his officers together and he said, right, one of you's a spy. One of you is, is basically operating on behalf of uh, the king of Israel. And they said to him, no, Lord uh, King, it's not that at all. But Elisha, the prophet, who is with Israel, tells the king. In fact, he is so powerful in the prophetic, he's actually able to tell the king the things that you speak in the secrecy of your own bedroom, which doesn't give him a lot of chance. So he comes up with a plan. And the plan is that he's obviously going to take out uh, Elisha. Go and find where he is so I can send men to capture him. Uh, This is 2 Kings chapter 6 if you want to know where it is. Uh, So he's in Dothan. So he sent a strong force, horses, chariots. Uh, He goes there by night, surrounds the city. In the morning, Elisha's servant gets up, goes out and sees that the whole area is surrounded by this army. Uh, Army with horses and chariots that surrounded the city comes in in a great panic, says to Elisha, oh my Lord, what shall we do? Then Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. He can't see them. (laughs) Amazing situation, isn't it? Uh, Are you dreaming, Elisha? Are you, are you really with us? Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And then God gave them to strike them down with blindness and deal with the whole situation. Let's just look at, through a few points on that since we're looking at battle strategy. All right, he's a prophet. He's engaged in advising the nation in a difficult situation. It's a real world. He's not just uh, having pretty pictures about nice blessing. He's basically in a real world engaged in that. And we've already said that, that he's so accurate that the enemy can't get away with anything. And the Elisha is definitely uh, surrounded <clears throat> and there's a recognition there of an opposing force uh, that's right there. But there's also a godly protection. And it's really important for us to understand in, when we're looking at battle strategy, these, we're not ever on our own. In a battle strategy, we are engaged together with him. And our role, and our key role, is to be obedient to do what he gives us to do. Uh, to respond according to, according to how he gives us to respond. And of course, there's a, uh, a revelation of a whole sort of heavenly host on their side. Let's see what we get from that. First of all, there's the ability to see at a different level. His eyes were opened. He acquired sight that was not available. See, the thing that is seen looks real. But is it real? It certainly has the illusion uh, of looking real. And if we look at whatever battle we want to take on, We talk about something in our own lives, something in the nation, something in other nations. It's certainly, Babylon looks strong. But natural sight is very limited when you're dealing with God and involved with being part of his battle plan. 
See, there's a hidden, more real reality that was affecting the balance of power. It wasn't an illusion. It was real. But it was not available to natural sightedness. But it was available as God revealed it in answer to Elisha's prayer. Of course, response can be determined by what we see. We understand that. Elisha's servant, we we sympathize, was duly alarmed. But you see, that, that illusion, that false position, because he could only see what the enemy was doing, can produce a completely wrong action. We live in a world where these things exist. I was uh, listening this morning briefly on the Andrew Marr program, and he was, I think it's when he was interviewing David Miliband, and they started to talk about um, the situation in in the Middle East. And it's very interesting, he said, well, of course, President Obama has now stepped in and and changed the whole thing. He's basically said, uh, if Iran get a nuclear uh, bomb, we will will take them out. And Israel, you need to just calm down and not worry too much about it, etc., etc. Why do you think that's such a big deal? Tell you why. Because so much... Of the, of the doctrine, which certainly affects America, there are other factors as well, is that this Israel, the nation of Israel, is the same as the Israel of God. It's a completely wrong uh, perception, a wrong understanding. But it's a perception that causes America, particularly, to be supportive of Israel in ways beyond which they would otherwise not do. See, we understand we live in a world which still exists with false perceptions and false understandings. Our responsibility is always then to hear God and not to be completely taken up by some of the prevailing perceptions. But here comes now, into this situation, a proclamation of truth that corrects this illusion. In verse 17... He says this, Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots and of fire all around Elisha. God calls us to live in truth, to proclaim truth, and it's truth that sets us free. He is called the truth, and it is the truth that sets us free, that delivers us from these things which appear real, but actually there's a a higher, greater reality than that. Servant had limited sight, but needed to see what God saw. Prayed, his eyes were opened. I, okay, I wonder if those the, the horses and that, that were surrounding Elisha were there all the time. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, Elisha certainly saw them. Uh, I don't know. I think a good question for us is, Lord, what is there that we can't see? What is it that you want us to see? If we're entering constantly into a strategy for battle, could we please see the things that you want us to see and not be completely taken up by the reality or the apparent reality of what we can see with our natural eyes and natural sight? We need to see what you want us to see. He prayed that his eyes would be open. There was a, a, an acquiring of real sight. And of course that was followed by an action strategy uh, and the whole thing of striking with blindness. Interesting, isn't it? 
that the action strategy was in the same area. They could see, they couldn't see. They could see, they couldn't see. The enemy is struck with blindness as part of the capturing. It's, you could begin to pick up, hmm, there's an interesting thing. Elijah, Elisha can see what's happening, uh, even knows what's happening in the king's bedroom. Uh, the, the servant can't see. God reveals the sight. Uh, now the enemy can't see. A very interesting theme there. So the issue of sightedness, the issue of being switched on, the issue of being aware of what's going on becomes of critical importance in a battle strategy. And I've taken some time uh, because I think that is so important that we understand that. We cannot, 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 cannot afford to be asleep in the day. We have to be switched on to the reality of what God is saying and doing. This is not about our comfort. This is about a battle. This is about being engaged together with him to pick up from him what he has in mind for us. There are two or three other things that I want to just quickly mention as part of battle strategy. Of course, it's vital that we stay together. Way back in Deuteronomy, when the children of Israel were going to be uh, moving into the land and attacking the enemy, uh, Again, we see a very clear instruction. All right, you're going to settle in this part, but it's your job until your brethren have also gained victory, are also settled. It's your job to actually uh, go and help them. You have to work together in it. We know that when brethren dwell together in unity, God commands the blessing. We know how critically important that is. We know how vital it is that we all are responsible, that we look out for each other. So staying together. Next, I've touched on this already, the importance of following instruction. Psalm 111 verse 10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and all who follow his word have good understanding. If we want to be engaged in this, The issue of obedience, hearing God, responding is important. Do we know that? Do we know that? There is no other way. I mean, it's it's totally vital. But here's a different thing. Uh, Again, one of the things I picked up from uh, some of the stories my father told. Uh, And I suppose if you... If you look at military strategy, you would know far more about these things. And some people are interested in that sort of thing. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the tactics in battle uh, is to, um, as, as the enemy is advancing and spearheading, uh, if you attack on the flanks, you can basically cut off that, uh, the, the, the supply route, so that, yes, there's enemy there spearheading, but they're no longer really functional because the supply route has been cut off. It's a very interesting little point, is that you can't ignore the attack on the flank because, you know, it's, it would, if you ignore it, you'll end up in deep trouble. But neither can you afford to be totally diverted to dealing with the attack on the flank? Because otherwise, the enemy has won again. Basically, instead of moving forward, you've ended up dissipating all your uh, energies on things to the side, and you've missed the objective. So, attack on the flank, understanding what it is, and seeing also that, yes, you can't ignore it, but you cannot afford to direct all resources in a particular direction. So, we have, from time to time, things which are very real. Uh, Things that we want to give a lot of attention to. Uh, Maybe some particular need amongst us. Uh, Maybe maybe something with open doors and, and there's a particular need. And it's really important that we don't let that thing go past. But why... 
we don't direct everything to that is because we have to keep pressing forward into the overall objective that God has given us. And part of the responsibility of those who are to hear and particularly see and bring God's word amongst us is that we define between what is an attack on the flank or a diversion and how we deal with that and yet continue to advance. It may be helpful that we identify those things more clearly uh, and explain more clearly uh, as we go forward um, on this battle strategy. Then the next thing is uh, friendly fire. Strange name, we hear about that, we've heard about that in various wars in recent times. I have to say my father had a particular view on that um, because he found himself uh, fighting uh, with the Americans on his side and he had a particular view. And I don't think that we have to take up that view, um, but I feel duty-bound to say that he had more fear of the friendly fire than the enemy fire. Uh, Here's the key point. There happens at times, and it's tragic, that people advancing in battle get caught by friendly fire, fire from their own side. That is tragic, but it becomes desperately stupid if you turn around and start firing back. You don't fire back at friendly fire. You may sort of make an urgent phone call or something like that, but you certainly... We don't retaliate to friendly fire. We deal with it, but not by retaliating. And that's an important thing that we need to remember and understand, that there can be things that are inflicted, even within, but we don't react as though they're dealing with an enemy. And then understanding the enemy uh, it's another very interesting area, but I don't want to go too much into that. Other than say this, look, in, in Babylon, in the enemy, clearly things get sort of switched around. They say one thing and do another, or deny it. We, we can't ever be like that. Our strategy can never include the kind of... Uh, value system or the attitudes or the actions of the enemy. We have to understand the enemy. We have to understand that because it says this or because there's that, it doesn't necessarily mean it's so. But we don't be like that. We say what we mean and mean what we say. Then we have to take the right position, which is what we looked at earlier on. And I'm suggesting that our right position is we hear God, we know what he wants in the broader sense, we know what he wants in a specific sense. It's vital that we hear God, it's vital that we're awake uh, and aware and that that's something that is a responsibility upon us. And then, kind of like David, there should come within us a holy ghost defiance. Remember we talked about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. One of the outcomes of that is a, is a fighting spirit. Is a, we're beyond this we will not go. Beyond this point. This is an issue of righteousness. This is something that God has said must happen. We will pursue it. And that is the basis of taking the right position. To be defiant. To be forceful advancing. Not to be deterred. To battle through. To engage in governmental prayer, to take the position that God indicates, to hear his word so that we move in faith and to have expectations based on what he's saying rather than anything that the enemy's saying. To help us in the application of that, Okay, we're going to um, hear Toby's story of late. Uh, grab a chair, mate. Get that out of the way in case 
People can't see your lovely face. You see him okay? Hasn't he got a lovely face? (laughs) The jealous man at the front. Okay. I've got lots of notes because it's it's a long story, so we had to work hard on trying to trim it down. But you've always been a deep thinker, and within that you've been quite self-analytical. However, in October, this kind of self-criticism almost went haywire. Can you explain what was going on in your head? Um, I kind of let myself go down a path which was really not helpful, helpful, like a way of thinking about myself and my situations. And uh, I became, yeah, as Jamie said, very self-aware, self-analytical, self-critical, and it was very crippling, and I was kind of wrapped up in that, and I couldn't, I couldn't escape from that. I was sort of trapped in my own mind, in a way. Um, and it, it was... You talked about a sense of guilt within it. What was the yeah. guilt about? Um, because I was like very much aware that it was my own choices that were leading me down this path, I kind of became guilty whenever someone tried to show me care or tried to reach out to me. I... I felt a pang of guilt because I felt like I didn't deserve their care. I didn't deserve their reaching out to me. Yeah. And you described it like as if your, your mind folded in over on itself. And you would come out of a conversation and you'd look at yourself. And then you would look at yourself looking at yourself. And look at yourself looking at yourself looking at yourself. Yeah. And it became, it became a trap. Yeah. And... During this time, you, you explained to me that there was the sense of God's presence was a theoretical thing. It, it wasn't something that you were really experiencing. Now, as I said, this it really went haywire in kind of October time. What would it look like on the outside? Or what, what was the outworking of this? Um, well, I stopped working completely. Um, I didn't really get any work done in the first term, my second year. Um, I couldn't concentrate. I was very withdrawn. I wasn't uh, engaging in social things. Um, I was, yeah, I just didn't have any joy. I wasn't really communicating much with anyone. Um, it was just not a very good time. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I remember hearing back about this time, and there was a sense of panic. What do we do for? Toby, what, 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 is, what is there that can be done? He's entered into a really dark place. What were some of the, the moves that you, you made to try and fix it before Christmas? Um, well, I kind of talked to my parents about how I was feeling, and, and that, that just made me feel a bit more guilty <laughs> as I did that. Um, and I, I went to counselling, which I guess helped me to kind of clarify my own ways of thinking and, and everything, but I still... Still wasn't really moving on. So the efforts didn't resolve, and there was still kind of a, a downward spiral. Um, what tell, tell them what, what you said to your housemates at one point? Yeah, um, at one point I was feeling really low. I just and I went to two of my housemates, and I I just said I I'm really not enjoying being alive at the moment. Um, just completely came out of it and. And they, they were a bit freaked out, but I kind of asked them to pray for me, um, and they did. And I think that was, that was one step, and uh, their, their reaching out to me actually showed that there is more for me to kind of get from people and, and for me to uh, step into in terms of people showing me care and actually responding to it. So you, you kind of got through just about to Christmas, um, and you came for Chris, came back for Christmas, but you're still struggling with the communication um, side of things. And then while you were back, John was talking one Sunday about he, he offered a response for people that if they felt that there was a barrier between them and God, you thought this was you, but yet you didn't respond. Why not? Um, I recognised that that was me, and that that was a perfect description of the situation I was in. But I I felt like I still deserved to be guilty. And that I I couldn't I couldn't access God. That I, I I put up that mental barrier, and I I couldn't remove it. I couldn't get past it. Basically, 
So, I mean, you were still in a very dark place, and then it came up to the end of the holidays, and you had to return back to university, and you were fairly anxious about this. But yet, God began to do something pretty soon after you got back, and there, were, there was a number of, of different things that God started to do. Can you take us through those? Yeah. Um, first of all, in my work, I, f- I felt God really guiding me. Um, I was writing an essay on, the title was, What is the Value of Truth? And I, I felt a real conviction to actually to write what I believed about, about truth and, and about God's truth in particular. Um, and, yeah, based on the Bible, but I, I realized that there wasn't a matching up between what I was writing and what I was living. There was a gulf between the theoretical and the practical. So, um, and yeah, also there were kind of many opportunities where um, I was able to share things with people and, and talk to them. One in particular, I, I went to church at uni and sat next to a, a girl I didn't know. And at one point in the service, uh, we were asked to pray for the person next to us. And um, so I asked the girl, you know, is there anything you want, you want prayer for? And she said, yeah, um, I've actually been been suffering from really bad depression recently and um, I feel God's really bringing me through it but I just I want you to kind of <laughs> pray for that that there'll be a real um, continuance of that and so so I did and I felt there must be more of these opportunities for me to reach out that there's so much more that I'm not stepping into and so I kind of asked God to to show me those um, and yeah then you were invited on the church weekend away yeah. up in Durham and it was a bit of a, a scary thing that you'd yeah. begun to say, no, I, I couldn't possibly do that. But then something happened in, in you which was like slightly different. Mm. I, I saw my reaction to, to the invitation to go on this weekend away, and I realized that this cannot be of God. If, it, if it's limiting me, if it's not giving me freedom, it, it can't be of God. It must be of, of the enemy. It must be a lie from the enemy. And, and so I... I sort of rose up in indignation and I said, no, I'm going on this weekend away. And in making that decision, I, I've really felt such a, a release in freedom. And um, it was a really positive time the weekend away. And God spoke to me through many people there. And I built lots of really good relationships. And I'm so glad I went on it. And it came from hearing God. And that was... And you said that the, the, the prophet, like the the profitability of going on that weekend away made you wonder, what if I said yes to God more often? Um, Also, something happened to you when it came to um, prophetic activation. Um, I was praying with some people from the church, and I was able to just speak to them. I I decided, you know, normally I I would have taken that opportunity and said, how can I get through this with the minimal amount of awkwardness. Um, how can I uh, try and uh, make it as bearable as possible for myself and then get through it and maybe offer something but not fully engage in it? But I thought, no, again, I had that indignation and I thought, I'm going to actually listen to what God's got to say for me for these people. And I was able to prophesy for each of them a very specific word and they were all very encouraged by it and I just thought, this is, this is amazing what God's doing. And I, yeah... It, re- it reminded you of something that was prophesied over you when you were baptized. Yeah. Um, when I was baptized many years ago, I had a word that I would be given the gift of communication and that I'd be able to communicate things in a very simple way to people. Um, and throughout my life, I've kind of held on to that, but I've never really seen the truth of it because I thought, this isn't, this isn't happening. I'm not, I'm not being a communication um, it was a communication rocket, the specific word. Uh, that would be like a rocket of communication. And it's almost like this time God was beginning to help Toby see that what he'd been living in wasn't what God wanted and there was a kind of a separation of God's word against the devil's, devil's word over his life. Tell me about your moonlit walk. Um, yeah, I was, at this time I was kind of, still really feeling a lot of guilt inside and um, 
I was always, I kept praying to God, you know, take this guilt, take this guilt. And it just wasn't happening. I, I kept being weighed down by it. It was restricting me. And there was one night in particular that I just, I really cried out to God. And I said, you know, what, what do you want me to do? I, I'm here, you know. And he just, I felt the Holy Spirit just say, go for a walk. Um, so I did. I left the house and I kind of walked uh, along by the river. And I just really felt, as I was walking, an outflow of everything that was in me, everything that was weighing me down, to come out. And I was able to just speak to God. And I really felt the reality of Jesus' love at that time, more than I've ever felt before. Um, and I sort of came to a, a wooded area, and I, I, I saw the moon, and it was, like, huge and blazing like, like the sun. And, and I, I just felt God say to me, behold my power. There is so much more for me that you are not stepping into. And I just, in the middle of a public footpath, I got on my knees and prayed and gave everything to God. And I felt a complete release of everything, a physical, a physical change in my body. Everything that, that was in me before was just completely gone. And... I liked your phrase the other day that you said to me was, I can't afford to have a single thought in my head that's not in his. Now, how are you different today? Today, um, first of all, I'm, I'm able to discern when the enemy is trying to restrict me and is planting those lies in my head. Whereas before, I just think of them as innocent thoughts and this is just the way I am. This is just the way I think. I can't, I can't change it. I now rise up and think, no, this is not what God's got for me. Um, and I just, I'm able to really trust God that what he says is true about me. And, you know, there's, as John touched upon earlier, there's a passage where Jesus says, if you, if you are truly my disciples, then you will continue in my word and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that has, that has really become a reality for me now. I've experienced this. This thing that I was writing about in the essay has now become the way I'm living. Um, and, yeah, I, just, I really feel that this is, this is the end of that, that period in my life that God has broken through once and for all, and I will not return to that, to that place where I was. Yeah, praise God, eh? Yeah. Thank you.